You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Chris O'Brien. Chris O'Brien is Australia's most successful rowing coach, with his athletes winning two gold and two silver medals over the last four Olympic regattas, and six gold with numerous rowers at the annual World Championships. In August 2012, Chris was appointed head coach of Rowing Australia, leading the team to a much improved performance at the 2016 Rio Olympics, where they won one gold and two silver medals. After the Rio Olympics, Chris left Rowing Australia and joined the Australian Institute of Sport, where today he is the lead performance consultant across a variety of sports. Chris is a self-effacing and humble leader with a sharp eye for reading his athletes, and in his words, tapping their human spirit to get the most from them. He does this by helping them prepare for the physical and mental demands of elite rowing, particularly in the closing stages of a race when their mind and body is under pressure and they are starting to compromise their technical abilities. He also has interesting views on decisions versus choices and how by taking a very deliberate and conscious approach to decision making in training, athletes are able to make better choices in the heat of competition. And towards the end, he shares a great story to illustrate how coaches can get caught in the trap of focusing on the things that need improving with their athletes and not the things that they are doing well. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Chris O'Brien, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Good, good to catch up. Can I just start off with asking where in the world are you today and what are you up to? I'm I'm in um, beautiful Canberra, the nation's capital in Australia. It is buckling down like cats and dogs here at the moment, but uh, I, I've got to say it's actually welcome that we are actually getting a bit of rain. We don't get a lot in Canberra, I must say, but um, yeah, that's great. I've been tapping away here, working away today across a whole variety of matters, I must say, and putting my head in some different sports from from that which I've um, you know traditionally had myself involved in. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. We're going we're gonna to talk a lot about rowing, which is, of course, where you did most of your coaching. I appreciate you have a, a different role these days, and we'll get into that as well. But I'd like to start off with um, 
a pretty broad question, actually, because you've coached at least four Olympic Games, numerous world championships, and you've had the chance to see some great coaches directly. So I'd like to know, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? Just uh, start off with a nice, easy question there, Paul. <laughs> um, uh, Look, it is interesting, isn't it? Like it's, it's. We possibly wouldn't be having this discussion if the uh, if the answer was a straightforward one. And I've got to confess that it is something I have considered as the difference between the good and the not so good. I, my my own personal opinion is is that connection with athlete. You know, the the athletes who win Olympic gold medals are good athletes. The athletes who come second, third, fourth, and fifth are also really good athletes. There's a difference as to why some win and some don't win. And it's therefore, I think, for, for good coaches to get the most out of the athletes that they have. And, and I think we can all identify amazing athletes who have not been um, successful in achieving, say, an Olympic gold medal. Um, and there are a variety of reasons as to why. But the great coaches, I think, are really those who... Uh, that I look at uh, are those who really manage to harness a human spirit, that human endeavour, and to truly understand the people that they're working with. That's not to say that others don't do that. We know there's a variety of things, but but to me, our game is about um, pursuing outcomes through human endeavour. So it is that that connection at a very human level that is the point of difference we can do the training we can do all of the whether it's races whether it's matches or whatever it might be but the, the true point of difference to me is is that ability of a coach to be able to connect at a human level and and exploit um, the the capacity or the capabilities of those athletes with which they're working well talking about great coaches i believe that you started off by watching your father coach when you were younger and then later on, he's watched you coach as you've moved around. So what elements of your coaching philosophy were influenced by your father? Oh, look, I would say it was pretty significant. It was at a very young age um, that uh, I would sit in, a, and it was in rowing, I'd sit in a coaching launch listening to my father coach. Um, and, and I do reflect and say that he possibly wasn't able to achieve as much with his coaching at a um, like on a world stage, simply because he was um, so passionate and believed so much in the coaching that he was doing with with school children, basically. Uh, from about three years of age, I um, I kind of think I can remember that far back, but I I know from about three years of age, I used to sit in the coaching launch with him and listen to him. I I um, reflect very strongly on. Um, what he held as being important as a coach. Uh, and, and there was possibly two key principles. Uh, and his, his two things were about making it fun and enjoyable. And, and the second one was, um, and we are talking the sport of rowing, was about the skill development and being technically proficient. And, and I think they're two things that, that I've carried with me forward in my coaching. Uh, then when I reflect upon my father watching me in my coaching and he's very generous sorry i'm being sarcastic he's very blunt and pointed uh, feedback to me uh, about my coaching he, he is actually able to highlight the differences between how i take up that role as to how he took up his role and i, I think the um the points of difference is perhaps that i make a a greater effort, I think, to seek to understand from the athlete side, to seek to understand what they're, how they're understanding things, how they're trying to achieve, um, how they're going about trying to get the best out of themselves. So, yeah, interesting though. I, I actually enjoy the opportunity to talk about my coaching because it is other people such as yourself forcing me to reflect upon what I hold as, as being important and, and where you have taken me there is to two really strong points that I think I carry forward in what I do that I, I have taken on from my father. You've said that there's no cookie cutter approach to high performance. You don't roll out the same training program each year. You adapt to the combinations you have. So in rowing, how do you describe the role of the coach? Oh. <laughs> um, 
it, it, it is interesting. I uh, and and that your quote is correct. I do believe that. And I believe it is it is too easy for people to think that it is about going back to now. What did we do last year? And let's roll that out again. I, I believe very strongly in the most important part of what you're dealing with as a coach is is that group of athletes that sits right in front of you. And as I said before, you seek to understand those athletes, what um, what makes them tick, how they're trying to go about doing their business and, and how you can best tap into their endeavours to make sure that they can deliver their best outcome. So uh, as a coach, the, the role is very much about getting to understand your audience and getting to um, understand how to get the most out of each of those people with, with whom you're working. So, yeah, there's certainly there's all the work about the, the training program, but I, I don't think there's any athlete, say, in the sport of rowing at the Olympic Games, for example, who hasn't trained hard, who hasn't done a whole heap of work, who hasn't tried to optimise their own personal performance so they've almost they've got to be givens as far as I'm concerned, and it's then tapping that human spirit to understand how do we get the most out of these people. They've got to believe in the work they've done. They've got to believe in all of the things set before them in the preparation. But it's truly understanding how to get the most out of those individuals, not just the athletes. It's it's knowing each person as as an individual athlete. I, I did actually do a podcast. And it was with two of my former athletes from two different crews. And and I did reflect in that those two athletes did not row in the boat together. And I just reflected upon how different the two of them were as individuals and the difference in approach that was required to get the best out of each of those guys. So, yeah, Paul, you, you take me through some huge reflection here and, and, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to be conscious so I don't get too off track here because um, it, it's, it's usually rewarding for me to reflect on, um, on my journey. So thank you. It's not, uh, you're not getting off track at all, Chris. It's, it's great to listen to your story, actually. And I did listen to that podcast and um, yeah, it was an interesting story where you t- talked about taking, I think it was, Oh, was it James or, or one of the rowers and you were going down for an early morning row and they just weren't into it. So you said, you know what, let's go for a coffee. And then what I wanted to ask is what did you talk about? If you could tell that story again, and I'd really like to know what you talked about while you were having that coffee. Yeah, it, it was, it was actually, um, it was, it was Duncan. It was Duncan free and drew in in the, the lead up to the um, 2008 games in Beijing which, by the way, on Sunday, I, I'm oblivious to the important dates in history, but apparently it was our 12th anniversary on Sunday. So Drew made sure that he came through with a message to um, to remind us of the occasion. So um, and appreciate him doing that. But that that preparation was with Duncan and and uh, and Drew. We we were staying at a hotel nearby to the rowing course. We kind of bundled them out in the morning and hop into the car, the three of us. Uh, and we head to the lake. Uh, it's been a very quiet journey down. Normally, there's there's a fair bit going on, a fair bit of banter and discussion going on. But we we pulled up at the lake. We looked out over the lake, and it had been silent basically the whole way down. Uh, we look out over the lake. It's still silent. I looked around, and there was these uh, empty, lifeless faces that were in the depths of a very heavy training block. And it was very much that that into choice, yes or no, do we do this or not? Uh, and I very quickly realised it was a no day. We weren't going to go on the water and simply turn and said, well, it looks like our, you know, our best plan here is let's go and have a coffee, effectively. So we turned and I turned the car around and the mood immediately lightened. Now, um, we still finished more training for the day, but we just dumped a session. We dumped it. Uh, we sat and had coffee. We had you know, a few laughs and a good chat over the coffee. And and we also spoke about the reason why we weren't doing the session. And there was a recognition from uh, from both the guys that, yeah, actually, it would have been an ordinary session. I don't think the mindset was right. Um, you know, we're, we're in that solid block. But, but that said, we're able to have that conversation and then launch into our second of three sessions for the day, having discounted the first 
of where they entered into that with a fervour to get the most out of that session and likewise the third session in the day. But it's just those moments. And, and I, I did say there it was a choice on my part. And, and I think that in, in sport, it is that ability to be able to make choices. And I differentiate between choices and decisions that as, as you develop as a coach, you get better at choices, yes or no. And it's in it's innate it's become innate in you as to summing things up very quickly to be able to go yes no as opposed to I think a decision which a decision requires a consideration of the pros and cons and when you have two athletes at uh, 196 plus centimeters average of 94 kilos between the two of them and you're weighing up you make very quick choices about where you're going to go. And uh, you back your judgment on that. But I, I do, I think, yeah, that ability to be able to make choices as opposed to decisions, decisions which are what are the pros, what are the cons. Hmm, if I go this way, this is a consequence. I go that way, that's a consequence. But when you're sitting in the car with two athletes that really you don't think you're going to get a lot out of it, you make some pretty quick choices as to where you go to. Was there any particular event or circumstance that sort of led to this uh learning around choices versus decisions? Um, look, for, for me, I, I, I actually think I grew up in, um, I'm originally from Ballarat in Victoria uh, and moved to Melbourne, but I'm from a state that, you know, AFL is very prominent. And I remember um, watching a game of AFL on television and the commentator you know, there was a commentator kind of talking about something about a choice that someone had made. You know, they, they chose to um, put the ball out of bounds. And, and, I, I, and I can kind of piece back together that there was some consideration around that. And I, and I do remember now I was actually in Ballarat and um, I was teaching at this stage because that was part of where um, I believe I developed a fair bit of my coaching and my belief system around coaching was in, in coaching school programs. But Part of it for me to get better athletes in my school rowing program, I also built some connection with the school football team. Um, so I spent some time also as an assistant coach with the the, um, the senior football team. And, and I remember the coach always used to talk about um, the quality of decision-making as well, like the better players are the ones who are better at decision-making. And I connected these two events about the commentator talking about, you know, almost they chose to put it out of, out of bounds and then this whole notion of decision-making in football. There's no time for decision-making and it becomes innate and it becomes automated and it's actually practised behaviour or it's innate behaviour. And so there's that reflection around AFL I don't have the full clarity of the formation of all of those thoughts, but I know that's where it started because, you know, you're in a game of, of Australian rules football. You do not have time to make decisions. And those who go to decisions are the ones who get caught with the ball and the ball gets turned over to the other team. But the ones who are actually able to make choices, yes or no, I give it to this guy or I give it to that guy, the ones who are actually able to do that and do that quickly are the ones who are more successful in the heat of the moment. So as a, as a coach, I believe we continue to develop those skills around being able to make better choices over time, but they do start as very deliberate and conscious decisions around what we do. And, and I think that by the time we're at um, a high level in our coaching, we're very much into choices, not decisions. That's not to say the decisions completely go, but we actually make better choices and, and we're actually able to make those choices, those yes, no decisions in the moment, in the heat of battle. And the heat of battle could be two 200-centimetre athletes standing over and you say, well, why was that session so ordinary? And they're looking for your opinion, you know, to standing in the Olympic Games uh, with an athlete like Drew Ginn, whose back is shot um, after the heat of the Olympic Games and knowing that you've come in as two-time world champions and that the whole event is at risk. You know, the, the three-and-a-half-year campaign that had gone into that boat and had positioned itself to be able to win and to win well was now placed under threat. And, and there was very much a need then for, sure, there was some nighttime decision-making there, but there was some choices in the moment as well that meant that that campaign stayed on the road and ultimately delivered, you know, the medal that it should deliver, which was an Olympic gold medal. 
full disclosure, I was there that day. <laughs> I was working in you Beijing. You were? Yeah, right. I was working in Beijing right. at the time and, uh, and, I, and I was in uh, – it, it, at the venue when it happened. So it was a pretty special moment to be an Australian and to see the success of that team. Um, but I want to just pause actually, uh, Chris, I want to go back to, you know, you talked about human endeavor before and you talked about um, your father really having this, uh, having this focus on skill and also having fun. But when I was preparing to talk to you today, I was looking back through some um, video you know, of, of rowing races and the commentators always talk about the technical or the physiological aspect of the rower. So I would like to ask you, how do you balance this uh, as a coach, this approach to both physical and mental development? Yeah. Look, I, I firmly believe that the skill component is incredibly important. We're absolutely preparing the physical capabilities at the same time. And then you allude then to the, the mental skills around that. And, and they all do link in. So to me, yeah, you've absolutely got to do the physical preparation, but at the same time as doing the physical preparation, you've got to be doing the skill development and the mental development to mean that in the heat of battle, that athletes are actually able to make choices as well around what they're doing. So when you're halfway through a 2000 meter rowing race and uh, you're at a point where um, you've built up so, so much fatigue, you're under pressure, your body's tiring, your body's starting to give you cues around, yes, I'm tired. Um, this is, this is starting to hurt even more. My body's asking me questions. How do I make sure that my mind comes back with the right answers? That's where there is an ongoing dialogue in, in the training around the physical, developing the physical capabilities, putting the body under physical load, ensuring that we know what the skills look like and feel like as we are delivering that physical output, and then equipping the mind with the ability to be able to combine those components components and to deal with um, the external inputs that are coming in saying that this is under pressure. So for example, we do a lot of preparation around mental rehearsal and mindfulness. We do that work to make sure that we fully understand the behavior of our body. So what is our physical capability? What are the um, things that we experience when our body is starting to come under pressure? What is it that's starting to compromise our technical capabilities? And what are the things that we can divert our mental attention to, to ensure that we're actually able to deliver our best possible outcome? And I'll, I'll give an example and I will go to um, a different Olympic Games. I'll go to the 2012 Olympic Games. One might say that we failed in the 2012 Olympic Games because we only won a silver medal. And we had high hopes of achieving a gold medal in London. But the thing was that everyone was able to walk away from that event disappointed, but also able to acknowledge that they were still respectful of their result because they understood why they got silver. And I think that's a, that's a challenge for people too, is that quite often the people who, who struggle with um, a result that wasn't what they were expecting possibly didn't truly understand their own performance capability and how they produce it. So it goes back to my point there with the London Games was that we understood exactly what our best performance looked like. We understood what we needed to do to deliver our best performance. So when we started on our international um, work in 2012 and we raced the first World Cup that we went to, we raced in Lucerne. Uh, we led for 1,800 metres over the, the Great Britain crew and we lost it in the last 200 metres. And in the last 200 metres, we lost it because we didn't work as a crew and we finished up with four people going in different directions doing their own thing. We went away and in the next three weeks, we did our homework around identifying what we wanted the last 
200 metres to look like and what the time before that needed to look like to make sure that we could deliver that. We went to Munich World Cup. We met, um, it was Great Britain who beat us in Lucerne. We raced Great Britain then in Munich. Uh, we met them in the semi-final and we beat them comfortably in the semi-final. And we turned around the next day then to row them again, race them again in the final. And we bet, beat them again in the final. We then had a break in training. We went to the London Games. And in the London Games, we, we had our own heat. We, we won our heat and went through the semifinals. Some anomalies in the progressions that went through there, but we finished up drawing the British in the semifinal. We raced them in the semifinal. We led them through until the 1800 metre mark. And we were still in the lead at the 1800 metre mark. At the 1800 metre mark, what we delivered, though, was our Lucerne finish and not our Munich finish. And there's a whole heap of work that went into identifying what Lucerne looked like and what Munich looked like. So we delivered Lucerne, we got beaten, we came second. Okay, we could still do it from here. Unfortunately, on the day of the final, we got unfair lanes. And we knew that was a, possible, a possibility at Eton in London. We had unfair lanes. The British drew the preferred lane. The US won the other semi-final. They got the second preferred lane and we got the third preferred lane. We had a crosshead wind which favoured the, the British there, and we went down by under a length. Now, do we look back on that race and feel that um, we failed in that race? No. We know why we placed ourselves at a disadvantage in that race, and that was because of what we delivered in our semi-final. So a, a huge amount of work that goes into understanding what those um, races look like, but we got to the end of, of London. So Drew Ginn was in that boat um, in London, it was his swan song. It was his final race as an international competitor. He had a perfect Olympic record to that point. He'd had gold in 96 in Atlanta, cruelled by injury in 2000, gold in 2004, gold in 2008. Coming into 2012 as the favourite, doesn't win. Come second. But was still able to walk away from that. Yes, bitterly disappointed, but with head held high and a full understanding of why as a crew, they weren't able to deliver the performance that you know they knew they were capable of, but they knew why. And I think it's a really, uh, a really important um, lesson there about understanding what your performance capability is, how you deliver your best performance, what it looks like, uh, so that then when things don't go right, you perhaps have a better understanding as to why the outcome didn't go your way. But what we see there too is that they are choices in the moment. So these athletes, they're making choices in racing. We're trying to condition that over time. I think in 2012, um, we, we had a 50% crew change between 2011 and 2012. And maybe if we'd had that combination together for a little longer, maybe we would have been able to solidify some of those lessons and make sure that we're more reliable in delivering the Munich finish, not the Lucerne. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Finish. That's no, a it's a great explanation. Thank you for sharing it, Chris. I can I can understand that it's a must have been very disappointing, but also a great learning that spurred you on actually as a coach. Because after two thousand and twelve, you were promoted, I believe, to be the head coach of the rowing team. Yes, it was disappointing in two thousand and twelve where we where we finished tenth, or Australia finished tenth, but things changed uh, in Rio. You know, the team finished fourth, and I'd like to ask you what were some of the things you, you first did when you took over and started looking towards Rio? 
Ooh, and and um, actually, I have again, I have some very vivid memories in there because it was at a time where, as a sporting system in Australia, we were going through some significant change. Uh, I started in October, um, and I had a period of time there where, uh, actually, I was trying to uh, make sure that we had people in the right roles was the first thing. So I will give a specific example there of where um, we had Lyle McCarthy, who had been our women's head coach. I don't believe that we were getting the best out of Lyle because we had him in as a women's head coach and we were also asking him to, to deliver a crew performance. And he's, he's an amazing coach. Lyle is an amazing coach. And I had observed him over a number of years. I'd been on teams with him since my first Olympics in 2004, had been on teams with him every year since. And I saw a guy who his best time was with a boat on the water delivering an outcome. So we took Lyle and had the conversation about him not being the um, women's head coach. And we made him the we put him onto a project boat and we took him from dealing with a whole heap of all of the girls and we focused him on one of the girls. And, and that female athlete that we focused him on was Kim Brennan. Now Kim had, had been in one sense, an accidental hero in London. I say that, um, gallantly, um, but accidentally in that she was rowing the double, um, her partner, Brooke Prattley, had been on and off with some rib stress reactions. So we um, got the single qualified at the final Olympic qualifying event just to make sure that we had it in play in case that Brooke didn't come up from injury at the Games. And uh, as a result, Kim won a silver and a bronze in the double and the single in London. For Rio, the strategy is very much about having her and Lyle and support team focused on delivering that project boat, that campaign. So, so we went very much into a specific campaign sort of focus and, and we identified where are our best opportunities. So that, that was one of the very first ones. We had some rearrangement in coaches. Uh, you know, I certainly look back and I see some things I got wrong at that time. Uh, as I said, the system was changing. I had to readjust the strategy. We were going from a situation of where we were, you know, we ran programs through the Australian Institute of Sport as well as programs through the sport that we were bringing those together into one entity um, and a rewrite of strategy to achieve that. So, um, and it wasn't long back too, I was, I was reading back through that strategy. I spent about six weeks at the start of 2013 writing that strategy and uh, there's some significant insight in that that I look back on and, and use in my current work across a variety of other sports as well. So, but, you know, we entered, I, I went into a 90-day plan that, that October, November, December, into yeah, um, the end of that 2012 year, um, geared up around setting up for the start of 13. It, it was also around to identifying who, who were the coaches that we could, we could take forward. Um, we had a very clear picture of who the athletes were that we could work with and, uh, you know, put some plans in place. Clear strategy. We did a lot of work around what our culture was going to be, and what were what were the values we were going to subscribe to. You know, a lot of work trying to set it up. I think we had a number of disruptors along the way that kind of got in the way of that. But I think ultimately we were well poised going into into Rio. I do reflect we had a couple of misses in Rio as well, and I think that um, we could have been even further up the order. But uh, nonetheless, I think we had we had a successful cycle. And I think, uh, you know, we've now, we've now got um, in Australia a centralised program. We actually started that work in, in the strategy document that I had written at the start of 13 was um, the identification of the need for that centralisation. And we commenced that work on that centralisation in 2014. And that's what's been set up for, for the here and now, the work we started back then. But, um, yeah, I certainly look back and, and possibly the thing I most look back on in that cycle is perhaps some of the mistakes that we made in the moment in Rio that, you know, if we'd gotten them right, maybe we could have been, as I say, even further up the medal table. Chris, I, I'd like to just pause for a minute. You were talking about the, the culture you put in place, the values that you developed when you were into that role looking towards Rio. 
but you also talked about there were some disruptors. Could you talk about how you managed to deal with these people that were perhaps being a negative influence on you and the team? Oh, look, and, and there's a variety, a variety of them. Um, some of that came from the complexity of what the Australian sporting system is and me stepping out of um, just focused on a single crew to being focused on a whole, a whole program and a whole system of delivery. So not only were we delivering a senior team, so I went from dealing with a boat. I ran a domestic program. I, I, I had a, a 24 squad, a 24 athlete squad domestically that I ran out of Melbourne. I, I had my international boats, my project boats. I'd work on an international season, but then I stepped into this world of where I had a full national senior team, as well as a broader squad that contributed to that team, as well as an under 23 team, an under 21 team, an under 19 team, a para team like the level of complexity and the number of moving parts that came into that was then just huge. Um, and my reflection back on that was, it was around my own um, readiness to deal with the high, high rotation rate on the number of different issues. And then also too then um, the fact that because we're dealing at a higher level and at a strategic level for for uh, our national program is in that interaction with a CEO and a board as well. Um, I had really good relationship with CEO. I had good relationship as a whole with board, but you had to, um, I learned over time about taking the board on a journey and, and who were the ones that needed more information and those who deferred to others for their information. So um, there's that, which was a huge, uh, a steep learning curve and, and as I say, the complexity of our system, we were running uh, seven senior training centres around the country that we were having to provide oversight and management of. Um, in addition to that, you know, a multitude of clubs that then sit beneath that that are then contributing to our national system. So just just huge, um, huge complexity. I, I originally, back many years ago, I, as I've described, I did uh, a lot of coaching at the school level and some huge lessons from that. But it takes your stakeholder management that you identify in a school environment, takes it to a new level when you're then dealing with a national program. So that that to me was um, was huge. Um, and I also look back to some of the lessons. I originally did a, um, at university a business degree um, in um, accounting and information systems. And I look back at, at some of what I learned in first year university and saying, particularly stuff around organisational behaviour that I look at and I say, wow, so much of this is actually so applicable and so true. Um, and in that moment of, uh, you know, a, a very naive first-year university student looking and saying, yeah, well, whatever, just tell me what the mark is, to, to reflecting some, you know, 20 years on as to um, the relevance and applicability of, of some of those, um, those insights that were gained all that time ago. Look, yeah, just so many bits that you look at. But I've got to say, my my greatest lessons have come from being able to step out of that role and to work with others who are taking up that role now and to see so clearly, so clearly see other ways of taking up role um, and helping others in how they take up their role. So if uh, one of these these other coaches that you're talking about came to you and said, Chris, I want to set up a, a higher performing culture within my, my team. I want the values to be stronger. I want the behaviors to be, to be m more aligned. What advice would you give them? It's probably no different to my advice on the crew. And that is that every crew is different. So every situation is different. So that which is required is going to be shaped and nuanced to, you know, the context and the environment within which we're working my first thing is, yeah, it's not the cookie cutter. Don't turn up with, well, here's how culture development is normally done or um, here's a plan. It's more, here are some ideas. Now, let's start to work through what the ideas are and start to develop a strategy for how we're going to work through this in this particular context. But don't by any means think that I can get the complete answer from one source I need to be 
inquiring. I need to be looking as to um, that which is going to work for me in my current context. So yeah, it's no different. It's no different to coaching. It's just at another level. So the skills and and the um, what you're trying to to achieve really are still the same. They're just at a different level of what you're trying to achieve. So when we have a crew, when we work within a crew, we have a culture within a crew. We have some values within the crew and we do go through that exercise. We have some rules that we observe as a crew. Um, and all we're doing is taking our lessons from the individual crew and trying to expand it out to two crews, to four crews, to eight crews, or a whole sport or one sport versus another sport. So, yeah, I won't cookie cutter it other than to say there, there are lessons there and we need to explore what are the other off- or the various offerings, what are the experiences of others. Now, what does it look like for me in my sport? That's a bit simplistic, but I, I'm just linking it back to, though, that it's the same as, as what I say about coaching. It is specific to the situation, the environment, the context, the individual's. So you talk there, Chris, about sources, you know, sort of alluding to the fact that you're learning or looking more broadly to, to gather information. Are there any particular resources that you found useful as a coach? Oh, look, and, and again, there's, there's um, a huge, huge uh, amount of material now. Um, and if I reflect back on when I started out in my coaching and I was only the other day out in the shed thinking I need to condense some stuff down in my shed, but I have stuff back from, you know, the, the late 1980s into the 1990s in hard copy that I need to digitise. There's a whole heap of stuff there. And, and, of course, what happens when you sit down to say, right, I'm going to refine this a bit, you just start reading. And to be honest, I... I don't think things have changed that much, really. I, I presented at a conference in Brazil um, early last year, 2019, for the Brazilian Olympic Committee, and it was a coaches' conference there. And, and the presentation I was asked to deliver was about the future of coaching, where coaching is going to go, what's the new horizon in coaching, it comes back to some of what I said earlier. I believe that the, the new horizon in coaching lies back somewhere in the past. That I, I think we've told ourselves some stories over time as to what is important um, and we keep looking for the point of difference for those who are successful rather than looking for the point of commonality that sits with those who are successful. And it goes to our earlier points around the technical, the physical and the mental and the melding of those together. So I think I think they're they're really important. But as I'm talking, I'm looking over the book a bookcase, and I'm reflecting on one book. There's there's a book over there, and it's called Fairburn on Rowing. So I'm talking rowing specifically. I think the version I have was a like a 1944 reprint, and uh, I bought it online from the Isle of Wight into Australia for. I think it was about twenty dollars Australian, and it's it's a within rowing. It's a bit of a collector's item. I think the nineteen ninety reprint can sell. You go hunting at different times. It can be as much as fifteen hundred Australian dollars to get a copy. Clearly, there's a reason for that. But uh, I, I look back at that, and there's stuff in there from you know early last century that Fairburn had written, which is still so applicable to what we do today uh, and I think so so when I when I read it goes everywhere it's it's no one theme it's no one common thing it's just a huge opportunity to see where where you can land but but I look back at that and that that's possibly the piece of written work that I would reference the most and there's there's one thing and it look early 1990s and I apologize for the language but the mark of a man is the quality of his blade work is stated in there um but if we actually look at rowing crews and we look at the ones who are pretty good you'll actually find that the ones that are pretty good have pretty good blade work and for the uninitiated the blade work is the little thing out on the end of the oar that you put in the water that Really, the mark of a quality, you know, oars person is their blade work. And 
if you sit there and you watch good crews go up and down to the world championships, even in training, you actually know that, that one thing that's really important is quality blade skills. So that, that's not something new, but it's also something that we forget. And it's also the point of difference. The point of difference between success and not being successful is potentially the quality of blade work. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one. And it's, this is where I get myself kind of into a, a, a bit of a mental quandary, you know, exploring about yeah, the point of difference and the point of commonality. So the point of difference for successful is what is it that's common? Now, it takes me back, actually, I did a, a coaching presentation post the 2004 Olympic Games and I was in Queensland here in Australia. It was up on the Sunshine Coast and I put a piece of video up of, actually, it was 2003, back in the 2003 pre the Athens Games. I put a piece of video up of the pair that had just won the World Championships and I said to this group of coaches, I want you to have a look at this piece of video and tell me what you see. Uh, and I want you to take notes and it's going to go for about five minutes. So it's a good opportunity for you to capture some thoughts. So coaches studiously went around and went away as I'm playing the video piece and they're capturing their notes. We finish. And I say, right here, now I'd like you to play back to me some of your observations. You get one point at a time. Don't want everything you've got. Share, share it around. Let everyone have an opportunity. And we went for about five minutes of feedback. And I said, right, stop. So you're looking at a crew that has just proven to be the best in the world. They've just won the world championships. The room here has just spent five minutes telling me what they are doing wrong, the things that could be better. Yet, no one has been actually able to identify the things that they do well because it's the things that they do well the things that mean that they're world champions. It was silence there for a moment. I said, "Radio, you've got another one minute now to tell me what you see. And I play back a bit of video again. And, you know, they could only come up with one or two things that they could identify as being done well. And it says a lot to me that, you know, all of our reading and all of our investigating, um, we keep looking for the other thing that we can layer in. What else can we do? What else can we do? but we haven't actually identified what are the things we're going to hold true to and what are the things that truly are the, um, the point of commonality, but as a result of the point of difference between the good and the not so good. I, I, I hope I'm making sense there, Paul, but it's, it's a really interesting exploration there as to being able to identify what are the things that make it work because the coaching default is almost to what's wrong, what's wrong, how do I make it better? But in order to make it better, I've got to have a picture of what I want it to look like anyway and what the good building blocks are. Fantastic answer, Chris. I appreciate you sharing it. Thank you. Um, one last question, if I may. Um, I watched an interview um, from way back. I think it was 2013 or something like that, where you said, it's not about the workout, it's about the people. So I'd like to finish by just asking, what is the legacy you want to leave as a coach? <sighs> I, I, you know, I, I, I almost don't want to leave a legacy as such because I believe that my, my role as a coach is to impact on people without them actually knowing that they've been impacted upon. So I believe that the greatest impact we can have as a coach is negative. I believe that uh, in 30 seconds flat, I can have a life-changing impact on an athlete and it will be negative if I want to do it in 30 seconds. If I want to have a life-changing positive impact on an athlete, I'm going to struggle to do that in 30 seconds. But it takes time. So the negative I can do very, very quickly. I could, I could attack an athlete personally. I could give them you know, some very pointed, ill-considered, untimely feedback, and I will impact them hugely, and they will never, ever forget it. 
as a coach, when you're having positive impact on athletes, it takes time. It takes repeated effort. It takes a journey. It takes a commitment. It takes a relationship. And it takes a long time to keep overlaying all of those those positive impacts and some negative, but you keep laying them in and you're laying them in and you're laying them in. And it's almost just assumed. It's almost just that, well, that's what we do. That's how we work. And it's not really that strong recognition around that's had an impact on me. So, so the legacy piece really is, is almost people kind of saying, well, there's no legacy. It's just that we have a shared experience that we really enjoy doing together and we deeply value and we've continued to stay connected to that experience we've had, a la the text message from Drew Ginn reminding me of the, um, the victory in Beijing in, in 2008. And he said, you know, what a great time. And he just had a little icon, which was basically about, you know, perfection was what it was. So, yeah, the legacy really is the relationships that you have with people that are, that you know, they're life lasting, but they take so long and so much investment. Chris O'Brien, it's been a great chat. We've uh, loved meeting you. Thank you for sharing your insights today. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you and seeing future success uh, in the future in your new role. Good on you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim. You've been listening to our discussion with Chris O'Brien, the lead performance consultant at the Australian Institute of Sport. What Chris has just shared, I've already found myself coming back to listen to more than once. Chris's insights have deep application into the corporate world. As a sales leader, I can often look at a team's result and at times struggle to connect it with the team's own expectations. Typically, those expectations get reset. Perhaps it's more prudent looking to understand that the result only reflects the performance capability of the team. And taking the time to look at that would give me a better understanding as why things don't always go our way. It may even help define what their Munich finish could look like. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, we speak with the head coach of the German boxing team, Eddie Bolger. The four key areas, in my opinion, or my, my philosophy, are, is what I always focus on is to be a world-class boxer, you need to be mentally strong, physically strong, a good lifestyle, and technically and tactically developed. Now, as a club coach and as a young coach, you think you must do all this, but it's so much better when you, when you can avail of experts and when you lead the program, get these experts in to help you lead the program and help everybody push in the right direction. And just before we leave, if you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. Please contact us using the details in the show notes. Mm-hmm.